I'm sitting here at John McMahon's house looking out over Hallett Cove. This is an amazing setting, John. Um, I'm so excited to sit down and talk with you about what you've achieved. Um, we've been friends for a long time. You've always been a role model to me. Um, and you used to be my boss about 20 years ago. Now, that was when you were building retirement villages. You've had a sort of a, a change in what you do as a career now, now that you've moved into um, more of a medical um, arena. Uh, you now have two medical practices in the southern districts of Adelaide. Um, one was a clinic that you inherited. The second one was one that you have built. I'm most excited by that clinic. I've looked at it. It is state of the art. I want to talk a bit about that. Um, I also want to talk about the way that you run your medical practices, uh, the business side of it, and um, what um, the business model has looked like for medical clinics over the years and what it is looking like moving forward. Um, but before we start, welcome. Thank you for doing this podcast and vlog with me. Um, I really appreciate you setting aside some time. It's fantastic. Um, John, before we get into your business and what you're doing now and all those exciting things, can we just go back to your childhood? And I haven't told you that I was going to ask you this question, but you grew up in Sydney. I did. Um, you had a number of brothers. I have two brothers and two sisters. Two brothers and two sisters. Can you just tell us what it was like growing up in Sydney? Um, what, reflecting on your childhood, um, what were mum and dad like? What was it like, the street that you lived in? All of that early formation stuff in, that happened in the first seven years of your life. Yeah, the first seven years were a little disjointed in many ways. Um, I lived in Kensington for the first five years of my life, um, but my father was a shift worker at a power station at uh, Bunurong, um, and he got sick. So we moved to Windsor or outside of Windsor. So we lived on a property, a 100-acre property, for the next five or six years. So... We lived in the centre of Sydney and then we moved to the, to the country. It seemed like country in those days, uh, whereas now it's part of the Sydney urban sprawl. Um, but um, good times. Um, my, um, my mum was a homemaker, loved surfing. And for the first three years of my life, I was a suntanned little berry because we used to go down to Maroubra on the tram because uh, my dad worked all sorts of crazy hours. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, a good life. It was just tail end of the war. There were many things that were, were wrong, but um, I had a really good life. And then as my siblings came along, um, I think things got tougher rather than better because, because my dad had to work long and hard to just get us educated and do all of those sorts of things that parents do. Um, my dad was um, a fitter and turner and he was very proud of that and um, he spent all of his life working with metal. Um, for me, I, I probably judged him harshly because he was probably the wisest man I ever met. Um, and he was my best friend and um, there was very little I did without consulting him. And um, he, uh, he had a mental capacity far beyond his station in life, but he was just happy and contented where he was at and that was probably the distinction between him and I. I was never happy with where I was at because it wasn't at, it was somewhere short of at, and um, but no, it was a good life, uh, very safe, very secure, very loving, um, well-fed, well-looked after, couldn't ask for more really. It's really interesting. Um, one thing I noticed from you is 
that you're very um, hands-on in the work that you do. Like I remember when I was laying floorboards in my house, the chips were down, I was over budget, it was late at night, you rocked up on my doorstep with all your tools and we worked for hours and hours laying floorboards. You know, for someone in your um, high managerial sort of um, level of influence, um, I'm most interested in this real hands-on approach that you still maintain even to this day. Is that something that you got from your dad? Did, did oh, he- absolutely. Absolutely. And I started um, as a carpenter. Um, so um, that was a bad mistake. But um, after I made the decision to leave school, um, I continued to the day I finished my apprenticeship and that was when I put my tools away. I've only really built houses for myself and few things for others. But um, I think having a hands-on approach has really been a foundation of the business model that I've, I've worked with for many years. Um, as a developer, and I, I, I would classify myself as a developer, by being able to eliminate all of the add-on costs um, to the base means that I can build something of high quality for the same price that everyone can build. And that's that has certainly stood, I think, um, paramount in my mind that if we're going to do something, we should do it with excellence. There, there should be excellence in, in the way it's built and how it performs and what we're what we're trying to do. Form follows function, but it can be done with style. And I think that's what I've tried to put distinctions between everything I do and what others do is to do it in style. Okay. I want to take you back to a story which you told me about and I found fascinating. It was about the acquisition of a um, retirement village in a site in Adelaide that no one else was able to secure. And it was a, a farm on a massive block of land, I think in Campbelltown in South Australia. And you wanted to move into the retirement industry and you spoke to a number of key players in that industry and they had come back to you and said, John, there's only one place in Adelaide that's a standout site for any retirement village that you build in Adelaide but no one has been able to buy it. We all want it, but we can't get it. And then you came up with a strategy and you actually secured that property. Can you just take us through the steps that you took in actually um, from having the conversation with people around you who said, um, if you're going to buy a site, that's the one, and then hearing that it was basically not available, and then you used a number of clever um, techniques to actually acquire that property. Can you take us through that, please? Yeah, it, um, it was interesting because a friend of mine said that smarter people than I had tried to buy that land and I always find comments like that incredibly challenging and so I gave a lot of thought to it and I wondered if anyone had ever asked the, the owner of that land what did he want to do with that land? And the interesting reply was, I do not want it subdivided. So I found myself in a situation where everybody else was trying to buy the land to subdivide it to put houses on. And I didn't want to subdivide it at all. I actually would have liked to have expanded it. So we knew, or I knew at that point, there was a point of difference, that if he got top dollar, he would sell, but he wouldn't sell if it was going to be subdivided. And with the retirement village, you don't subdivide. You just build a whole lot of houses on one title. And that fitted his criteria and... The rest is history, really. Now, now, further to that, you actually recruited someone 
who was a car salesman. That's correct. And he was an important part of this deal. Yes, he was. Um, he he was a very flamboyant um, guy, and um, I uh, I went to him and I said, "This is this is the problem, and this is the opportunity." And in three weeks and two visits, he'd secured an option over the land because he went in with a incredibly unfair advantage. He knew what the seller wanted. Everyone else was trying to impose on the seller what they wanted and he wasn't going to sell because he was a very wealthy man and didn't need the money. He wasn't motivated by the money. And I think that's, that's an important lesson for many things. Uh, money isn't everything. It really isn't and leaving legacies and doing other things that make your reason for being clear motivates people, I think, far more than we give any sort of credence to. This is sort of touching on something which I'm really interested in um, because there's a number of properties out there which I've always wanted to acquire and I've got a knockback when I've sent a letter or whatever, but you sort of thought outside the square on that one and – did you actually go and knock on this gentleman's door and build a friendship with him and establish a relationship? No, I didn't um, because smarter people than I had tried that and it failed. So that obviously wasn't going to work. But um, because he was a fairly high-profile person in Adelaide, it wasn't hard to find people who knew him and just disgusted. It's all going back 30 years now. It's all getting a little bit vague, but um, Adelaide was a very, um, well, I think it was almost incestuous 30 years ago. Everybody knew everybody's business it, and everybody was related to everybody. It was just coming from Sydney where you hardly knew the people who lived in the same street as you to you know, having the whole street come to your 40th birthday party type thing or play tennis in your backyard, that, that was quite foreign to me. But it was, um, yeah, it wasn't that hard to find people who um, who knew the property, especially through the council. Um, there, there were councillors there that had um, known this property and there were a lot of people very attached to maintaining it. It was one of the very last pieces of land from the original government grants. And initially it went from um, the Torrens River to uh, Fifth Creek, I think it is, uh, which runs through the property. And um, so it was massive in its original four or 5,000 acres, and it had just been over decades and multi-generations had been carved up and sold off and resumed and all this sort of thing. So there was a lot of history. A lot of people were involved in that block of land. But when I was working for you, I'm, I remember we went out and we met with the residents in that retirement village and you managed to... Um, capture and preserve and restore and improve on the integrity of that beautiful um, old farm home. Yeah. And I think there were some outbuildings there as well. But that was the meeting centre for you, um, for all of the meetings and the get-togethers and uh, for all the residents moving forward. So it was tremendous that you were able to maintain, keep that building mm. and then build on it and build the retirement village from that. Um, even towards, uh, you know, like... 10, 20 years after you had it, that retirement village that you created there was nothing short of amazing. That was the one I think that you um, built the roads and there weren't um, gutters on the edge of the road. Yeah. So the, is that, is the, are there other things that you incorporated into that design which made it an amazing retirement village? Yeah, it's um, – there ended up being uh, four parties involved in it and uh, – that was a long, convoluted way of um, doing it. But I didn't have any money 
and my first development project was $19 million. So I had to have partners who had access to money and um, and that was really how we got started. But the purpose of, of that village was to make a statement and it was to state that you could retire and still maintain the lifestyle that you had. The average size of retirement village units in 1990 was around 79 or 80 square metres in size. Our smallest unit was 147 square metres because I was able to get my partners to agree that we would never, ever, ever build something that we wouldn't live in ourselves. And what we discovered was hundreds of people liked our lifestyle. And in the point of, or at the point of time when interest rates hit 19%, we built 110 units and sold the whole lot in 20 months. We stole the whole market because people were still building 80 square metre units and after they saw ours, wouldn't have a bar of them. So it was... I don't think it was ahead of its time. I think it was at the right time. And you ended up selling it only recently, mm. but I remember um, that there was a waiting list for people to actually acquire properties in that development. That's how successful it was. Mm. And then that led on to bigger and better developments moving forward. Um, I know on one of those in particular, you won an Australian Design Award for your design. Can you tell us a bit about um, what it was like to achieve that, to get the recognition from your peers as being an industry and a thought leader in the retirement village sector? Um, I think it's humbling. It is really humbling that... The big temptation is to get somewhere where you're comfortable and get stuck. And for me, I didn't ever want to get stuck. I wanted to push the envelope until I reached the level of my own incompetence, I think. But when we, we set out, um, we, were, we were promoting retirement villages as the last stop shop but in actual fact, with people living longer and many women particularly living alone, there had to be another alternative because independent living requires you to be independent. But if you can't drive and you can't shop, it was very difficult. Like we've got online shopping now, but going back 20 or 30 years ago, that wasn't in existence. So we had to keep saying, what would, what would I need when I get to that age? And then I would say, what do I want? And if what I need and what I want was different, I always settled for what I wanted. And that opened up many opportunities to be creative and innovative and, and just think we're not building this for old people. I'm building it for myself and I'll just get old one day. And when you were drafting it, how many times did you have to rework and rework to come up with that final design? Uh, I, I don't know whether we did it that way. We actually did something and then we built it and then we analysed it to death to how we could make it better, how we could build it quicker, how we could do it cheaper and still improve it. And I imagine that, you know, that was probably um, retirement village number seven or eight, so everything you'd learnt in the lead-up to that, it might have been a, a lot more than that, but you're building the first one, even though it was a, a, a very successful project, every product you built after that, you were encompassing all the knowledge that you'd built up on those first couple Absolutely. of projects. Absolutely, yeah. And I remember you saying to me that when you built um, the one that won the award, um, the apartments which uh, I think everyone wanted a corner 
apartment. Yes. And you came up with a really clever concept where effectively everyone could feel like their apartment was a corner apartment. Yes. Can you elaborate on that a bit for us, please? One, one of the problems in living in apartments is you're contained by the boundary of the building. And um, so what we did was we stuck balconies that actually stuck out of the building so you could still, like, have your own backyard on the fourth or fifth floor. Um, we tried very hard to articulate the structure so that it was not plain. Everyone could could almost pinpoint their own apartment by just counting up the number of floors and say, that's my bay window. It's boxes. Boxes are, are very functional, but I think pride in home ownership has been in ground into people. And if you're going to do something with the total investment of your life savings, then you want it to be good, particularly if it's your last point. And dishing up to old people functional things has has been an interpretation of caring for people rather than caring about people. If you care about people, you let them make mistakes, like... Do you care for a one-year-old? But do you panic if they fall over when they're trying to take their first step or fall off their scooter or fall off their bike? And yet that philosophy is something that many people just divert to and institutional care um, revolves around this, I will care for you because I can do it economically if I can do it on a mass scale. But if I care about you, then I'll individualise the things that are important to you. I will improve the quality of your life. I will make your life joyful in your twilight years. And that's, that's what I tried to tap into. Um, my late wife said, I know I've worked out why you're doing this. I've worked out why you do this. And I said, why am I doing it? She said, because there'll be something that you'll like when you get that old. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Okay, so encapsulating all of that, you sold out of your retirement villages um, and that was a um, very uh, um, rewarding and, you know, final stage in that whole process. That was a, basically you sold it and it was all beautifully managed and running superbly and then someone tapped you on your shoulder and wanted to buy you out, which is a great, great outcome. You've taken all of the experience from that and now... Can I just go back on that? There's, there's a really important thing that um, needs to be said there. My partner and myself built uh, what we, we strive to make the best. We called it Omega and... Because Omega is not really the end, it's the ultimate, the ultimate. So we, we, we had a, a view to make it the ultimate. But then we realised that without us driving the whole thing every single day to be the ultimate, it went backwards. And that wasn't a particularly pretty picture to own something that you work so hard for, for continuous improvement, which was one of our philosophies, um, to maintaining the status quo. And the competition was rapidly uh, closing in on the the head start that we had, mainly by plagiarising. But we couldn't... We could not walk out of the business and have the business that we had. Part of the business would die when the driving force behind it was taken away. So the only option was to sell. That was hard decision mm. because I thought that was going to be my legacy. But in actual fact, 
it would have been an albatross if we'd have stayed with it. And I think a lot of family businesses fall into that trap. You take away the vision, you take away the driving force and two or three generations of uh, hard work can just go up in smoke in a very short time. So I'm a little bit confused by that because I, I, I understand and I'm um, of the opinion that there's no such thing as passive income, but those projects were all finished and running by themselves. Um, how come you could... That's where I disagree. They were running because somebody was putting the fuel in the tank. Okay. And if you take the fuel out of the tank, you could have the loveliest car and it won't run. Right. So you you couldn't run it for the next 20 years under management? You couldn't run it? And well, we trialled it. We, okay. tri- we trialled that for about a four-year period and it wasn't going anywhere. It was being maintained and it was being maintained well. Things were being done by rote, but that wasn't how the business was built. So the formula for the development or the construction of that business was no longer there. So the driving force was taken away. Okay. So moving into the medical centres. Yes. um, You... Now, you've also got an interesting story about um, uh, you never went to university. No. But you built built one. (laughs) I built built a university. I built one and I went back and I employed the dean of the university to work for me. I love that story. Okay. Um, Why did you think that it might be a good idea to move into the medical sector? I didn't really think about that. Um, I was asked if I would join a board because uh, the sole owner had uh, a family issue and it required him to leave the country. Um, and he asked me if I would consider joining his board, um, that he had this uh, highly profitable uh, medical centre. Um, so uh, I joined the board on the condition that um, if if it was something that both he and I wanted to continue the arrangement, I would actually buy a share because I wasn't interested in just being a gun for hire. I didn't want to be creating wealth or putting my energies into something that I didn't have a financial involvement in and I certainly didn't want to be responsible at a board level for something I had no ultimate control over. And then one thing led to another. The opportunity arose that um, you were able to buy into that business and I know that there was um, um, quite a bit to that story but we won't touch on that. I actually want to touch on how you have um, now become uh, somewhat of an expert in running a medical centre and I'd like to talk to you about um, the medical profession as a whole, where it's come from and where it's heading. Okay. So where do we start? We... um We started out of a house. A doctor or two doctors bought a house uh, in 1979 and um, they converted the two bedrooms in the house and uh, hung up a shingle and they continued to work out of that house until 2010. 2010. Sometime earlier than that, the land next door became uh, available for purchase and they purchased it and land banked it on the basis that one day they might, um, in actual fact, expand the clinic. 
but it was just the two doctors who uh, worked in a very traditional way with one receptionist and everybody was happy. It was a sleepy holiday resort, really, with a few vineyards around it. And um, then one of the doctors wanted to retire and I think it was very typical that how do you pull your money out uh, when you retire? And the answer is you split the business or you take another partner in or you close the business down. And um, my business partner actually went and purchased the property and he purchased the business and um, and he hung his shingle up. It didn't take very long for him to realise that servicing debt and running the business wasn't going to cut the cake with two doctors, unlike the previous two doctors who had no debt. Um, it just wasn't going to work. The area was exploding with population through urban sprawl and the government was handing out money. Um, today, just today, I got a letter from the government saying that the five-year moratorium that um, the clinic had to enter into was up on the 1st of May this year. And the government gave him $700,000 to expand the clinic and to run it as a day-night clinic to provide after-hours medical services in the area. So he, he developed the site um, and by the time I joined in 2012, he had a total of seven doctors, including himself. And then he left, leaving six doctors. I think it had around 7,000 patients at the time in May 2012. In May 2017, we've got 20 doctors and 28,000 patients. We've got about 12 allied health workers. Uh, we've uh, got about 16 staff. So something happened. And... When I came there, I saw three, three problems and three opportunities, really. Um, the problem was we just didn't have enough doctors. There were people coming and we couldn't service the, them because we just didn't have the room, uh, didn't have the doctors. Then we didn't have enough patients because if there was more doctors, we needed more patients. Um, and then... Uh, the last thing was was that we needed to have um, committed and dedicated staff that were properly trained to to manage the processes of delivering healthcare services, and that's a, a really important aspect of running the business. If you don't have good staff as the conduit or the tie between the doctors and the patients, then viability goes out the window rapidly. Um, so we've uh, expanded, we've built a new clinic and um, I use the same principles that I applied to meeting the needs of residents to meeting the needs of doctors and patients. So I had a look at, uh, I put a lot of time and effort to have a look at just how doctors work how they, where they sit, uh, what, what they need, um, how they can be protected from aggressive or violent patients, particularly females. Um, the sort of door furniture so you can get a quick escape and things like that. I went to a lot of trouble to, to drill down into the the little things that could make a significant difference, even to the point of recessing um, the hand basins for the doctors uh, so that they can literally get out of the room. I, I looked at the rooms themselves, so we soundproofed them, we soundproofed the ceilings, we put 
zero shading lights in. Um, we did all of that. And then when we thought we had the perfect model, then we started looking at the size of chiprock sheets, the size of chiprock sheets. So I made the rooms so that you would not have to cut a sheet. You could just buy a standard 3.6-metre sheet and screw it straight on the wall. No waste for massive and rapid replication. And that's what we did. We worked out in infinite detail how we would build one room and then just did it 22 times. Well... Uh, how many square metres is the building that you built? It's 849, I think, from memory. Okay. And that can accommodate 22 doctors? No. It can accommodate 50 doctors. 50 doctors. We're licensed to operate from 8am in the morning till 11 o'clock at night, seven days a week. And are you open after five o'clock at night? Well, we're... Our first clinic is open from 8 till 11, mm. six days a week, and then 10 to 10 on Sundays. Um, the second clinic is licensed to do the same. So um, basically you can have at least two doctors in each room and we've provided lockable cupboards so that they can put their gear away and so no one can touch their, their gear. And is the second, the new clinic opened after five? Uh, yes, um, we're in a commercial zone. Uh, it's in a retail precinct and we're currently open, I think, two or three nights a week till nine o'clock when Woolworths closes. So we're trying to mimic the opening hours of the shopping centre. But um, as I recruit doctors, um, we'll be able to expand that till 11 o'clock at nine. Did you think of putting a pharmacy in it? Well, what I'm doing is I've got an application before the council to actually um, put a pharmacy in the original house, the original house that was built in, that started in 1979. I'm going to gut that house and put a pharmacy in there. There's a council reserve at the back of our site and we've reached agreement to purchase a council reserve, which is something that I'd never embark upon. That's been going for three or four years. It was just bureaucracy gone mad. Oh. The Minister for Local Government had to approve it, so he wrote to 62 departments and commissions and Lord knows what and asked them all did they have any objections. Even the Kangaroo Island Adelaide flight, because it flew over the top of the site, they actually had to say they didn't have a problem with <laughs> building an extension to our clinic. It's just, uh, it's just crazy. But I suppose uh, they're the rules you play by and you've got to, you play the game. You might not like the rules, but if there's no rules to the game, you get anarchy. And it's not a game anymore, it's a battle. So although some people still try to make it a battle. But we, we, we're going to double the size of that. And I think the, um, that is going to make us very well prepared for taking forward medical services as the population ages. How many patients can you see when it's at its maximum? 100,000. 100,000 patients. Okay. Can you just describe the way that you've built what I found was quite interesting? Um, you've got a, a waiting room that is um, a really nice place and a really nice environment to sit in. Can you just describe what thoughts were going through your head when you um, built the walkway into the waiting room, which is rather long and it's filled by plants on either side, into a beautiful big waiting room? When people come to the doctors, they're sick. And if you're sick and don't feel very well, particularly in the wintertime, to have the feeling of being outside and warm and in the sun, but actually in a building, is, um, is the concept. So what we've done is created like a conservatory. Our waiting room is like a conservatory. It looks out onto gardens and um, 
the the walls are floor to ceiling glass so the building is orientated so that in the summertime the sun doesn't come in but in the winter time it does so you can have uh, you can actually sit out in the sun indoors we built it in a height shape and i did that to try and conserve energy so that if you've got an after-hours clinic operating, you can literally shut down the energy consumption in 50% of the building. So it lowers your running costs. And if you're in a bulk billing environment like us, um, the overheads kill you because the government only pays the absolute maximum they think is the minimum you can survive on. What about energy efficiencies like... Um air conditioning and lighting, what factors did you okay. incorporate? Well, um, in 1993, I actually got invited to go to New Zealand to do a development over there. And that won the award for the most energy efficient building, commercial building built in New Zealand in 1993. And there was a young architect, just 23 years of age, um, was uh, nominated to design this building and he was absolutely um, single-minded about energy efficiency and the future and the um, elimination of using power, electricity. And that man changed my life. Uh, I went from being a an environmental sceptic somebody who actually embraces um, bringing the outdoors in. My own house, you can look out my window. I'm, I'm the only house in this whole street where um, there is no blinds. Everyone else has got shutters. If you look out the back there, you'll see shutters to keep the sun out. And that's because I got the coordinates for the setting sun on the summer solstice day and I built a nib. And that throws this whole wall in shade in the middle of summer. But in the middle of winter, the sun comes in and this house is currently being heated by solar radiation. There is no heat in here at all and we're sitting at about 28 degrees in the middle of winter. Um, and these sort of thoughts had all come from this young man. And so everything I've ever done since then, and that was a point of distinction with our retirement accommodation. We created outdoor areas indoors uh, just by using glass and, and uh, understanding where the sun rose and set and the angle of the sun between summer and winter. And I did that on the clinic so that in the wintertime it's full of natural light, in the summertime it's full of shade. I didn't see any water features there. No. Adelaide historically has had very poor water supply um, because we get it from the Murray and the Murray was where everybody dumped their stuff all the way from Queensland to, um, to Manham where it was sucked in. So hydrocarbons and, well, basically water purity was, is no good. So if you aerate it, it, it sets up... Uh, absolute ideal environment for spores and then you get all sorts of fungi and um, stuff growing wildly in it, especially if you put it in the sun, it turns into algae. So water features is something I've um, steered away from. So what I tried to do is I used all Mediterranean plants in the gardens. We've, Adelaide has got the Mediterranean climate of Australia. So why not use Mediterranean plants in the garden? And they thrive. They absolutely thrive. So um, it conserves water. Um, I've got recycled water on that site. But yeah, by using plants that are designed to grow in that area or have evolved to grow in that area, it, it, it turns it into something lovely. Air conditioning? Every, every um, menopausal woman doctor absolutely insists on having total control 
over the air conditioning. And the first thing I discovered was when you have 20 doctors, we've got 20 doctors, when you've got a whole heap of doctors and just a few of them fall into this one category, everybody freezes because they just keep screwing down the thermostat till ice appears everywhere and um, a continuous source of argument and all the rest of it. So what I did was um, on our new clinic, I put sufficient numbers of solar panels on the roof to run individual air conditioners, split system air conditioners, and I put total control in the hands of every doctor in every room. And I put a solar panel on the roof to make sure that if it was running full bore in summer, I never paid the electricity. And you've also recessed them so you can't actually see the units. Well, yeah, that, that was part of the emergency exit for the doctors. We made sure that the footprint of the room was square. So I set up what I call a zigzag. So it's a Z sort of shaped wall. And then the hand basins are back to back. I did that for another reason. Um, we've got circulating hot water in the in the building. So the dead leg on the hot water is only about 600 mil. There's about 400 um, mil of water is is potentially wasted, not litres of water. You've also built a sort of a room that can have minor surgery. Skin all. cancer is still a major concern for us. Um, particularly when you've got a young um, patient base and the median age for our patients is 30. Um, And um, so lesions and skin cancers have got to be taken off. So we set ourselves up like a mini surgery. It's not a a day surgery, but um, we're actually performing quite a few procedures um, in our facility And um, so we put a scrub room in and we can actually do two patients at the same time. One's being prepped while the other's been stitched up and then the doctor just goes between the two. So it's all about efficiency. Do you think that you'd move within the next one that you build that you'll have more surgical facilities there so that you can sort of um, take inroads into the hospital space? Um. The short answer to that is probably no. Um, I think we've got to stick to our knitting. Um, We're a GP service. However, um, we're an after-hours medical service, not an emergency service, Um, although with ice and other substance abuse things that are going on at the moment in our area, um, we need to make sure that we can deal very professionally with problems that present at all sorts of odd hours. and um, But one of the things that I'd like to do is um, I'd like to see the, uh, the two major hospitals, Norlunga Hospital and uh, Flinders Hospital, refer many more patients back to us after hours. You can go to Flinders and um, you can wait five hours. You can come to us and um, we can probably give you an appointment right up to um, the very day itself, um, which is getting harder because we're still attracting 500 new patients a month. And um, But we're, at the moment we're still working very hard on getting doctors, even though this visa changes put a, a bit of a roadblock up in some ways, but it's it's the after-hours clinic that I, I'm really passionate about because if you've got a child with croup at 10 o'clock at night, you need to see a doctor. You, you just can't let it go. And if you present an emergency, it'll be 2 o'clock in the morning before somebody sees you. Whereas if you've got a child with croup with us, we have a policy you walk in and you get into the very next doctor. And moving forward, 
how many more of these medical centres would you like to build? I think five. The Rothschild um, philosophy is a good one. Um, I think five is about the, the right number. There's got to be an economy of scale that enables us to be not corporate but retain the, the family medical practice feel where personality isn't sacrificed for numbers. Um, we see that having a lot of doctors is, is not, uh, not a problem with that philosophy because each of the doctors are going to treat their own patient base. And if they have their own patients um, and they look after them, then the fact that there's another 20 or 30 doctors in the clinic doesn't make a scrap of difference. It's how people feel. Someone said to me just recently, medicine is 90, 90% listening and 10% medicine. And hairdressers have known that for years and they've never charged consultation <laughs> fees for cutting people's hair. <laughs> but um, the thing is, if we can um, not depersonalise, I am totally against depersonalising medicine, but um, the current trends are not looking good for viability of clinics and the only clinics that are going to survive, in my opinion, are ones that have an economy of scale that enable them to continue operating and providing services uh, when times get really tough. John, we're out of time, but thank you ever so much for your thoughts, your inspiration, your words of wisdom today, and uh, I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.